Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered. My name's Ollie Dugmore and my guest today is a drag sensation. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> Winning hearts and minds during their multiple TV show appearances in Australia, the UK and the USA. The blonde bombshells rise to stardom was propelled by their appearance on RuPaul's Drag Race season six and in 2018, he faced off with Anne Widdicombe to become the winner of Celebrity Big Brother UK. But the challenge of loving themselves in a heteronormative world wasn't always so easy. Singer, drag queen, all-round entertainer. You may know my guest is Courtney Act, but today they're here as Shane Jennick. Shane. Hi. How's tricks? <laughs> Good. I always wonder whether um, people do the intros in front of the guests or not. Yeah. Because it's that sort of thing that you could definitely pre-record before, but it's kind of actually fun to sit here and go, ah, oh, yes. Oh, facing off with Anne Whittacombe. Yeah, oh, I yes. know. It's, it's an interesting one because sometimes, you, basically, you know, we've had a bit of small talk right before we've just sat mm -hmm. down. By the end of this hour-long conversation, we'll have a much better sense of each other. But to then go, right, we've chatted for five minutes. I'm now going to read aloud my, like, proceed of your life. Yeah. And you can either take it or, you know, it's actually, thinking about it, it could be quite risky, couldn't it? Because if you say something <laughs> that really offended someone, yeah. it would ruin the interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, thought feedback, feedback I think it was that? pretty solid I feel like Drag Race Big Brother here in the UK are my two sort of touchstones okay um, and I I it's interesting because they're they're important touchstones in my career but I think the UK and Celebrity Big Brother was a really important one for me so it's always nice to be in a place where people um, know and remember um, the show and my time on the show with such fondness we'll probably talk about it in more detail later on but just um why? Why is it so important in, in your eyes? I think for me, it was where my career went from being uh, a drag queen who was on Drag Race, sort of an interchangeable one of, well, now probably thousands of drag queens who have been on Drag Race franchises around the world, to being uh, a person who was fleshed out, I guess, in a 3D sort of way. I think Drag Race is a reality show. It's wonderful. It's one of my favorite shows. But you get sort of two-dimensional characters. And on Celebrity Big Brother, they're trying to feel like 
eight hours of television a week. So they, they have no choice but to make people 3D and show different facets of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so coming off that show and, and coming off as a winner and coming off as a winner against a formidable character like Anne Whittacombe mm-hmm. uh, and seeing that people really responded to some of the conversations I had in the house about gender and sexuality was, it was like, it was like, oh, you see me. I felt so validated as a human. Mm-hmm. It's interesting as well. I think, I don't know if they still do it, but in the early days of Big Brother, it wasn't just eight hours a week. There was a chat. It was a 24-hour yeah, channel. On E4, it was yeah. like they just run it all day, every day. And you'd see just the most great, like mundane, but also crazy. And you get a real sense of the people involved. I love um, the idea of just like tuning in and just sitting there like watching people for yeah, yeah, hours yeah. on end. Uh, well, you think when you were doing those mundane things when you were just living your life, did you, were you thinking this can't be making good television? Why is, why is someone going to, oh, you like this, this won't make the edit, I'll be fine. What was interesting was that I knew that I was being filmed because there was cameras, mm. but I had, I had forgotten anything beyond that. I actually forgot that the outside world existed. It was like, I knew I was being filmed, but I forgot I was being watched. That's interesting. And I remember at one point, probably 10 days in, somebody asked something about my parents and I was like, oh, <gasps> Oh God! I'd forgotten my parents existed. <laughs> I'd forgotten the whole world existed, and I was like, I was quite like, I felt horrible, and it was just amazing how easily the the outside world fell away, and you just became focused in what yeah, was in yeah, front yeah. of you. That's fascinating because in its original conception, right, it was almost um, you know advertised and marketed as, as a social experiment. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. It's very early on, right, in our sort of reality TV culture. But it was almost as much about yeah, you can watch it, but also how are these people going to respond yeah. to being placed in this environment? It's interesting to hear mm. you sort of lost that connection quite quickly. Yeah, I just adapted to, I think I've always noticed that I am good at dealing with what is in front of me. And uh, it's often like I'll picture like being on tour, like on a tour bus for like weeks on end. And I enjoy the experience until like that last few days where you realize it's about to be over. And then you start thinking forward. And then I'm like, Oh God, this was horrible. <laughs> but during the tour, I'm like, this is great. I'm having such this fun. Is amazing. Yeah. Um, so you're here today as Shane. Yes. Could you describe Courtney to us? Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's start there. I think that Shane and Courtney are two ends of the same stick. I almost feel like it's unfortunate that I have two different names mm. because I think I am Courtney. I would just be dressed differently if I was here. Like you would get the same interview essentially mm-hmm. whether, regardless of how I was dressed. I, I think because there's a perception, a visual difference and I guess like a different name, people think that maybe there's a character or um, or some sort of like different personality. Um, I'd say that depending on how the world reacts to me, I react differently. And as Courtney, definitely people treat me differently um, in different situations. I mean, particularly straight men will, uh, I will feel more comfortable around straight men as Courtney because I feel um, I can flirt or I'm received even with the air of confusion of knowing that I'm not a woman. Men are very visual creatures. So you tend to just get their first instinct reaction, which is flirtation. Mm. Um, Whereas Shane, probably less so in the UK, but in other places like the United States and even Australia, as Shane, I probably struggle more with an awareness of 
you know, and I'm not casting all straight, hashtag not all straight men. Uh, <laughs> Thank <but> you. <laughs> <laughs> being aware that like straight men will often not understand or maybe like think of me pejoratively, even if it's subconsciously. Right. Um, whereas in the UK, I actually find a lot more eye to eye with straight men and mainstream sort of pop culture, which is a really lovely thing. Mm, yeah, I think, well, particularly in the context of um, Big Brother, right? You know, a, a trans woman won Big Brother years yeah, ago, right, yeah. Nadia? And it actually, I think, highlights the sort of absurdity of a lot of the kind of um, culture war and mm. prejudice, particularly around, you know, all members of the LGBTQ plus community mm. because it sort of was not even a bang with a, or a whimper. It was like, oh, yeah, Nadia was one big brother. Yeah. And I think if that happened now, I think there would be a lot more unpleasant reactions. Moral panic. Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating how this moral panic around the queer community has come about. And it's really sad and unfortunate because when we do reflect back on you know, people like Nadia or even like my time in the Big Brother house, mm. queer people, trans people in, in pop culture over the years, there's been no moral panic and there's almost been an acceptance, a humanising and interest in those people. And now we're seeing people, a, a, a small number of people, I still believe, on an extreme right who are motivated not by... Um, truth, I don't think, but are motivated by the fact that they can win political points. Mm. And I think there's probably people at the top who are aware of these uh, strings that they can pull and these trigger words they can they can say and talk about. And then I do think those ideas filter down into the minds of some people who are unexamined and don't really understand. But I think at the end of the day, um, you know, having conversations about, say, trans kids um, even though it's a, a heightened topic, if you think back 10 years, that phrase didn't even exist. Mm. So even though there's a lot of fire going on now, we're actually so much further ahead when it comes to people being able to live their lives and accept themselves as they are. So I think there is a net positive, but um, you know, all of that visibility that we've mm -hmm. seen over the, the past 10 or so years, you know, visibility without protection is a trap. And so ensuring that there's those protections, um, especially for, you know, vulnerable people like trans folk and, and young people exploring their gender identity, I think affirming and supporting those environments is so important um, because, yeah, those people are so vulnerable. Totally. To go back to what you said in your previous answer, you said that um, you and Courtney are two ends of the same stick. Yeah. Has that always been the case or in, you know, initially were you perhaps drawing inspiration from other places? You, you, were, you were quite clear there that Courtney's not a character anymore, but mm. I wonder if perhaps in the early days, maybe she was. Yeah. There was a time when I compartmentalized more, I guess, and Courtney was an opportunity for me to express myself uh, femininely in a way that I wasn't allowed to as Shane. So the year 2000, I moved to Sydney um, from Brisbane and I realized I liked boys and I uh, would, was going to like gay bars up and down Oxford Street as an 18 year old and seeing drag shows. And I guess the drag queens on stage were sort of the closest thing to a Spice Girl that I had ever seen. And I was obsessed with the Spice Girls in high school. They were the closest thing to how I felt there was five women who were being told that they shouldn't act that way or they should, you know, act like women and, and they were being outrageous and they were being, they were defying what society said that they should be. 
and they were feminine and, and so I really felt a connection to that. And then, yeah, in Sydney, seeing the drag queens, they were, they were like, you know, Spice Girls in real life. They were local celebrities as well. It was before Instagram or mm-hmm. anything and um, social media and streamers and everything like that. And so I really enjoyed um, watching drag and I was a performer and so I tried it and I just remember the joy of being able to perform, one, because I loved that and I didn't, hadn't found any opportunities to do that in Sydney. Um, and then two, being allowed, even being celebrated for being feminine, which was never previously a thing. Um, I always was sort of a balance of feminine and masculine growing up, but I, I, as I got older, I became more aware that femininity was not a good thing and that masculinity was what made me valuable and so I was always trying to be more masculine than I was and particularly like throughout my 20s particularly in the gay community when you come to like wanting to be seen as attractive you think oh, I have to be masculine um, and so drag was really this place where I was just allowed to be me so and that involved a whole lot of femininity mm-hmm. um and so and then costumes and makeup and hair and wigs were things that i loved from when i was younger performing in pantomimes as like a mouse in cinderella or different characters so it was very natural um and i think more than anything like i didn't have to wait for anybody to say yes i could just get in drag go out to a bar and it was a form of performance in a way and then pretty soon got asked to be in different shows and as an 18 year old getting paid a few hundred dollars to be in a drag show on Thursday Friday Saturday night and being able to earn a living working three nights a week working like you know shows at 11 12 and 1 Mm. it was pretty amazing and then you'd pick up another gig and you'd get paid like an extra 200 dollars which was like 20 percent of your wage and like that's brilliant when you're 18 that independence yeah um I, we'll talk more obviously about sort of your evolving relationship with gender and the gender binary but just to, to focus on brisbane for a minute yeah um you previously described it as hot tropical and conservative <laughs> it's basically the florida of australia yeah that feels like a real punch down now i mean Florida has always been a place of questionable nature, but right now it's, I feel like that is an unfair comparison. And in fact, uh, Queensland, uh, the, the state that Brisbane is in, elected more Greens senators in the last election and actually sort of like turned, I, I, I feel like I should know more about this, but I feel like we thank Queensland for our current Labor uh, Prime Minister. Okay. In part. Interesting. And as a younger person, mm. were you, you mentioned performance, you said you, said you were performing. So how, what, what age did you start um, doing that? I was probably about six. Uh, in, I was Mr. Tiny Tot 1987. Um, still not sure what that means, but it, Neither was, am I. <laughs> it was like a, it wasn't a beauty pageant, but it was like a, a, child it was like a fundraiser no there was no talent involved (laughs) (laughs) you sure um it uh it was so it was like raising money for a a charity and uh i guess it was like a personality competition for kids okay and i don't remember why mum entered me but there was like regional heats and then the final was at dream world on the gold coast which is like a place with roller coasters and things like a, a Brisbane, a Gold Coast Disneyland sort of thing. Mm. Um, and so I think that sparked 
I mean, and I won. So, I could imagine as a five-year-old, like, that probably, like, imprinted in my brain, like, being on stage, being a winner. Yeah. Um, and then I always loved performing. And mum asked if I wanted to go along to, like, singing and dancing and acting lessons. And so, I did. And I loved it so much. And that that became something that was such an important part of my life for the next, till I was about 15 or 16, I was at the famed talent agency and theatre company in Brisbane doing singing and dancing and acting. So your parents were supportive then of your hobbies and interests when you were yeah. growing up? Yeah. I was, um, my nephew, who's uh, seven, he, my sister sort of keeps sending photos of him in different you know, soccer gear and jujitsu gear and all of the performing and things. And I just remembered, I was like, I, I did everything as a child. I feel so lucky that I had the opportunity to try. I remember playing like football. I remember doing jujitsu. I remember playing like field hockey. I had a bowling ball, ice skating. But the, the thing that like stuck was the, the, my jazz shoes. Actually, mum and dad are moving and they just sent me a photo of all of my itty bitty like dance shoes like tap shoes and jazz shoes and there was ballet shoes which never got worn i wish that i had gone to ballet more but i think i lasted two lessons before i got bored of that sure um so big into dance then yeah love dancing nice love moving who did a young shane look up to and idolize um i mean 14 year old shane looked up to the spice girls like mm -hmm. legitimately fran drescher the nanny who wasn't as popular here um but it was, a, it was a huge TV show in Australia and the US. Um, I think there was like, uh, there was very few um, role models that directly reflected who I was. So I had to sort of find people like the Spice Girls who sort of inadvertently spoke to who I was. Mm -hmm. um, and whilst it sounds like your home was a very supportive and loving environment, yeah. what was going to school like because obviously once you're then mixing with a really big group of different boys and girls the divides and differences can be quite stark can't yeah they? i think those divides and differences became apparent around puberty i'm never sure when i went through puberty my voice never broke i never got hairy i, I just sort of like gradually turned into the person i am but for everybody else puberty was around like 12 13 mm -hmm. and that's when things started to turn a little before that Kids were just kids. They were almost void of gender, mm. um, except for perhaps, you know, that girls wore skirts and boys wore shorts and that, that beyond that, I don't think my brain had really comprehended like what that meant. Like I loved skip, like playing jump rope mm -hmm. with all of the girls and I wore shorts and all of them wore skirts and I didn't quite know why that was, but beyond that, I hadn't really worked it out. But um, yeah, things, I had a really supportive family. But then I think the messages that I picked up from society, television, the, the no visibility of, of queer people um, on TV in Australia in the 90s um, was, was it, on reflection quite stark. Like when you start to feel that you might be attracted to someone of the same sex or that you express yourself differently and you don't see anybody talking about that anywhere, you don't see that on television anywhere you start to question if you're the only one. And if you're not allowed to have those conversations out loud, you wonder, oh, no one else is talking about this. Maybe I shouldn't mm. uh, in case I am the only one and that's something wrong with me. And the sort of the shame from that starts to build from a young age. Um, and at school, it was just always this, I just never fit. 
I was always uh, like flamboyant and feminine and, and I would lean into those things like um, I bought a pair of buffalo boots, like the Spice Girls, like platform boots and wore those to school. Um, uh, everybody had backpacks, but I, it always like hurt my back because we didn't have lockers. So I had like a airport wheelie bag that I would trot around school with. Um, I had braces and headgear. I didn't have to wear the headgear to school. And I remember getting out of the car on the first day when I had it and mum being like, oh, you, you know, you don't have to wear your headgear to school. You just have to wear it for 10 hours at nighttime. And I was like, I know. I was like, but Dr. Patricio said that I would get it off quicker if I, the more I wore it. So quite practically, I just wore it all the time and wore it to school. I don't know, like, like it, this is retrofitted psychoanalysis. Yeah, right. But perhaps I was giving kids a target that wasn't, me or who I was, like headgear and platform shoes and a wheelie bag and a woody woodpecker hat. Like these were all things that kids could pick on that wasn't like the core of who I was. So it was almost like deflecting. Almost like armour to put up around you. Yeah. It was literal armour yeah. as well. <laughs> that, Metallic. That giant metal bull bar out the front of my face. Yeah. Um, and then in senior year, we in Australia, we have um, what are called senior jerseys, like a, a foot ball jersey that you get to put whatever you want on the back and mine said spice boy 99 so i literally was pinning the target on my own back yeah um but i kind of enjoyed it in some way i i think i think perhaps i've been thinking lately a lot about power dynamics <clears throat> and i think in a way all of those things were a way for me to have power over the narrative mm. um and just having an aha moment as I talk about it. Um, and I, I think, yeah, that was sort of like a survival technique that was really quite effective. A way me. that you could exercise control. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you're picking on me because of these things that I chose mm. um, that I didn't have to display, but I sort of chose to peacock all of these things about myself. And I was like, I had a choice in the bullying, if mm -hmm. you will. Right. And you mentioned there that you didn't think that sort of the gender stereotypes are innate in children, uh, that sort of it's something that's either learned or conditioned. So where do you think those stereotypes do come from, those harmful stereotypes possibly do come from? Yeah, it's not that people with penises aren't a certain way and people with vaginas aren't a certain way. It's just that the bandwidths that we have are extremely narrow. Mm. I think they're more narrow for men and I think that they're more negative for men. Um, obviously, uh, female empowerment movements, um, I mean, all social empowerment movements, Black Lives Matter, queer liberation, Me Too movement, women's liberation in general, are all about responding to the oppression by, you know, men generally dare I say, the straight white man, the patriarchy, all those buzzwords. Um, but I think that those very narrow stereotypes have evolved over probably centuries and differently in different cultures. And, and we see different examples of masculinity and femininity and, and femininity, a woman being the way someone with a vagina is expected to act in society sort of thing like i feel like the idea of gender and sex i think about it um sort of probably out of alignment with like the party line of um the queer movement at the moment but sex being you know your your biology and gender being the way that biology performs their role in society and if we look 
uh, at society now at different places on the planet, but certainly we look at masculinity and femininity and how men and women act um, throughout history, we see that gender is fluid. We see that gender is evolving and always changing. We refer, we don't refer to gender as a fixed thing. If we think about Catherine Hepburn, you know, in the 1930s, she was one of the first women to wear trousers and she wasn't allowed to enter actually Claridge's in London. She was staying at the hotel and she wasn't allowed to enter the hotel because she was a woman in trousers. Like that would seem absurd to even Ann Whittacombe. <laughs> even. <laughs> Today, right? Yeah. Like, I think everybody could universally agree yeah. that the idea that less than 100 years ago, women weren't allowed to wear trousers is a mind-blowing concept. And if we take that little seed and we tease it out and bring it forward, the idea of clothing having a gender should feel absurd to everybody. Mm. I think people think that the the suggestion that gender can be fluid or expressed differently is absurd. But if you if you take another few steps back, the idea that gender is binary and that clothing has a gender is actually the really weird thing. It's mm. just the consensual reality that we're we're all abiding by. But the fact that like that like I think if you think about like cave person times, I probably wouldn't be sent out to hunt the the beasts. I'd probably be like picking berries or like doing something that was more practical for my body type and my skill level. I think it would probably be more of a meritocracy. Mm. It wouldn't be like, oh, you've got a penis. You've got to go out and kill that. Mammoth. Mammoth. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um, we believe in you. Yeah. I think there would probably be, I think if you plot femininity uh, on a spectrum from least to most and masculinity on a spectrum from least to most, or sorry, if, if you plotted femininity in women from least to most and masculinity in men from least to most, I think there'd be this like big Venn diagram crossover where there are more women who are, st who are stronger and more masculine than a huge chunk of men. Mm. And so I think the idea that masculinity is exclusive to men and people with penises, that it feels just a bit absurd. Um, I think those ideas, I understand that those ideas were probably very important to our society once upon a time when it came to social control and forming civilization to have boundaries and guidelines where books like the Bible were sort of like um, a, a way of mass communication um, before social media. Like, I guess, like, the church, going to a church, you know, regardless of your religion, your synagogue or your, or your mosque or your church, were, were, were forms of social control and communication before we had, like, newspapers and mm. the printing press and ways of, other, of communicating other ideas. And so forming societies and civilizations, having those sort of guidelines and boundaries was sort of really important. But all of those guidelines and boundaries always had men and white men um, and straight white men at the, um, the most superior um, point. And so the way society was set up from that sort of trickles down, um, it is the form of trickle-down economics that works, I guess. Um, and so you can see how now why we're in the state that we're in and now we're trying to dismantle those systems because we are um, a more inverted commas civilized society uh, and we're able to hold more than one idea in our heads at a time. And I think that 
most people feel and understand that social change happening gradually, but I think there's been some really big steps forward, like with second wave of feminism and mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter and, and queer mm -hmm. liberation that I think are really important because those systems aren't serving the most number of people anymore. And I think the thing that I've always thought was a good ideal was like the greatest good for the most number of people. Mm -hmm. That utilitarian kind yeah. of point of view. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's interesting picking out sort of um the points you made there about patriarchy, but also I think particularly misogyny mm. and helping people to understand that, you know, for, to take your example of a straight white man, for example, that actually patriarchy harms that person as well. Because if anyone has ever been called, you know, uh, I won't use the language, but, you know, a slur that would be typically be associated with homosexuality, mm. that is patriarchy I'll harming. Use it. A puff or a fag. <laughs> Thank you, Shane. <laughs> we'll get on a soundboard, I'll press it so I, I don't have to say it myself. Um, but you know, the misogyny harms men as well, yeah. right? It's not it's not I think and actually it switches men off when a lot of the time when they hear the word, because they think, well, I, you know, I don't hate women. What, where's this come from? Yeah. But actually it has negative impacts on them as well. Yeah, and understanding that can be a real challenge because the idea of hatred of women. Most men, straight or gay, would be like, no, I don't. Mm. But then I, I sort of unpick these ideas in my own brain and think of times where I found myself being misogynistic or racist. Uh, and when I identified those feelings, an example is like, I remember being in New York City for the first time and sitting on the subway when I was like, I don't know how old I was maybe 21, and uh, a man came and sat down next to me and I remember like pulling my things closer and I was like, oh, what, what was it about this man in a suit that made you like pull your things closer? And I was like, oh, it's because he's black. And I was like, oh, do you think that this man is going to be more likely to cause harm? Or, like, why do you think that? Mm. And then I realized that uh, in Australia, you know, especially back in uh, the 80s and 90s, we didn't have, uh, a, or I didn't, live in but we also didn't have a very um, diverse population it's become increasingly so with immigration um, we have our first nations australians obviously um, but i had picked up most of what i learned about people of color from film and television and those depictions were always negative scary dangerous and so then when i was like in new york a very diverse place i was suddenly like oh why did you, and it was really interesting unpacking that and going, oh, okay, so I was essentially sort of socialized to be racist inadvertently 
by all of those um, examples or those, not all of those, those very few examples that were given to me about people of colour in the media. And then I think about misogyny um, and I think about all of the ways that women are portrayed in the, not just the media, but in politics. Like we just don't see equality in leadership roles of women and men. And I don't think that's because women are less capable. I think that's because they have been kept out of those uh, positions um, for a reason. And I, I think that it's probably not a conscious thought in most men's minds, but I think that if people examine, if men examine the way that they think about women, I think a lot of those things probably come from social conditioning, like, oh, God, women, oh, those, those sorts of, like, oh, th thoughts that run through men's heads um, that see women as uh, less than, mm -hmm. um, I think, are, are probably because of the way the world is set up rather than the fact that women are less than, because I don't think that they are. And I think that then those ideas around femininity being inferior and masculinity being superior um, get translated to other places like homophobia. So um, gay men and queer men are seen as less than because they are seen as feminine or even, you know, the types of sex men have receiving can be seen as feminine and less than. Um, even in the gay community, there's like bottom shaming. Um, but it's, yeah, so I think it's interesting unpacking those ideas of masculinity and femininity and, and working out whether they serve us. And I think that probably the people that those ideals serve the least are the straight white men. And I'm not saying, oh, poor straight white men, like we need to help them. But I actually think that rather than putting out fires, which is what those other sort of uh, empowerment movements are doing, I think addressing the problem or the causes is probably a better word, is, uh, is going to be more functional. And whilst I don't think it's the job of the oppressor, sorry, whilst I don't think it's the job of the oppressed to explain themselves to the oppressor, I've always felt if I have the energy and the capacity and the ability to help someone understand something that I would like to do that. Um, and I've really been thinking a lot lately about how I can, um, how I can reach and connect and have conversations with straight men that will be heard by people outside my echo chamber. Mm. Um, so I've actually been thinking about like podcast ideas and things like that. And I'm like, how do I reach an audience where the men who would benefit from these conversations are going to hear it because I can put a podcast out and promote it on my Instagram, but it's really only going to be heard by, you know, girls, gays and grannies. So I would like it to reach straight men. I thought, well, having guests who are those men um, is probably a good way to bring their audiences. But yeah, just trying to think about, um, I guess, being of service in a way. Mm. And I do have lots of interesting conversations with straight identifying men um, in my bedroom life, usually about 30 seconds after um, uh, climax, mm. when a man is not thinking about sex for that five minutes of their day. Um, because as Courtney, um, I, straight men find me 
straight identifying men find me very attractive as Courtney, but because sexuality is in such a strict binary, a lot of these men are so confused and so conflicted about their sexuality because if they're not straight, then they must be gay. Um, and one of the conversations I often have that is fun to watch, um, it, it's fun to watch the wheels ticking. They're like, oh, so does, does this make me gay? Because in their mind, that is the worst thing they could possibly be. Um, and I say to them, excuse my crass language, you might have to bleep it, I'm not sure. Go ahead. I'm like, do you like, speaking in their terms, <laughs> do you like pussy? Yeah. Do you like women? Yeah. I'm like, well, then you're not gay. And they're like, oh, 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 oh thank God. <laughs> and I'm like, none taken. Um, but then I'm like, but you're also not straight. And they're mm. like, all that, they're like, oh, like but that, as long as I'm not gay. With the math symbols yeah, like flying around. Very what? that. What? And so this idea of like binary sexuality, binary gender really limits and, and um, creates cages, essentially like, Cages made for men by men. Yes. But with no awareness, it's that idea of um, systemic um, structures versus individual ones. And mm. I think people often get confused when talking about any forms of like bigotry or restriction. And they're like, well, I'm not racist or I'm not misogynistic. But it's not just whether you're saying like, racial slurs or, or misogynistic slurs mm. although i would argue that all of us all of us not just white men and not just white people or not just men or not just women or straight people but everybody in our western societies has been socialized to be racist misogynistic and homophobic i think it's this idea that like all white people are racist i think all people grow up with these ideas and these um these hierarchies of value placed mm. on different skin tones, genders, sexualities, and it, it's impossible for us to avoid that. So I think once we sort of accept that we're all, um, we're all going to be socialized to be racist and misogynistic and homophobic, we can take away some of the personal um, feelings about that because people are like, oh, well, I'm not. And you're like, well, we all are. Mm. Um, and so unpacking those ideas and why those ideas occurred, I don't think they're inherent to who we are. I think they're ideas that have been given to us. So rather than just rail against them, if we can start to perhaps look at them and unpack them and work out whether they serve us or not, we'll get ahead a little better. And I think those ones that hold men in their cages, um, that it's not that like the 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 straight white man was like, well, I'm going to build a cage for myself <laughs> that I can't express emotions or feelings or I have to like cars. And it yeah. wasn't a conscious thought. And that's the idea of systemic and structural, um, that those uh, limited and narrow expressions of masculinity were sort of handed down in mm -hmm. the system. Okay, so accepting then that we we all live in a cage <laughs> um, and you know one of gender norms but all of the things that you just outlined yeah. earlier on you mentioned sort of being younger and playing with femininity and shunning masculinity in some ways and so inevitably because of that cage which you've just very eloquently outlined there's inevitably going to be opposition mm -hmm. there's going to be 
bullying. There's going to be all sorts of sort of nasty stuff that goes alongside it. And I wonder if, particularly when you were younger, whether you thought maybe I should just stop like being this way, may, or, or did it actually the converse happen and you sort of lent into it further? I probably thought about stopping, and I just don't think it was possible. Yeah, like I think. I was irrepressibly me. I think that that's why for a lot of, to use the buzzwords like patriarchy and heteronormative always do make people go like, oh. Mm. But like for people who fit that bandwidth enough, they're able to exist with a level of comfort that doesn't, um, you know, cause too much shame or self-loathing. But I think that if you're, sort of outside that bandwidth so much that you just will never fit into it. You have no choice but to stand out. And weirdly, that is one of my greatest gifts in a way. And I think, um, you know, being attracted to people of the same sex is, I think that's like bisexual people who are attracted to different genders. Like guys can be attracted to women, bisexual men can be attracted to women and be that can feel content and they don't need to necessarily be attracted to guys to have some part of their sexuality fulfilled Um, and obviously vice versa for bisexual women and and other people. Um, And so with like, you know, flamers, gay men who are, you know, whose natural gender and presentation is more feminine, who are attracted to men, um, it's harder to... Uh, fit into the norm with that like I am attracted to people of different genders so I think in high school I was able to get through by having crushes on girls and having girlfriends um, and that did feel authentic it didn't feel like I was pretending just to fit in I genuinely am attracted to women and so that was a part of my sexuality I could express but I think the the my attraction for men is different to my attraction for women. I think like for men, it's romantic and sexual um, and it represents a bigger facet mm. of my sexuality. So eventually I couldn't, I couldn't stay in the closet about that anymore. And that full scope or sort of full appreciation of that probably became more apparent or did become more apparent to you after you left school and you sort of moved. Yeah. So. Moved to Sydney and saw different examples. And I think as well, um, I, I wonder if sometimes some of that bullying or those negative consequences that you mentioned come from people who are playing by the rules and resent those other people for expressing themselves. Mm. The idea that may cause some insight, I remember being on the tube during the pandemic when we all had to wear masks, it was very like lockdown times and I was got, yeah. And everyone was wearing masks on the tube, except for like two, they happened to be straight white men. I'm, uh, these two men on the tube. I remember sitting there like going like, we are all playing by the rules. We are doing what we're supposed to. I remember being filled with like a rage, like mm. I'm not stupid enough to ever pick a fight with somebody because I know that I won't win. But in that moment on the tube, I like I had a physical rage where I wanted to go, like, go up and like, because I had the masks on, but just like on their chin. Classic. And I wanted to like, whoops, <laughs> and yeah. like just like physical. And I was like, oh God, like why am I overcome by this, mm. this 
physical like anger and aggression for somebody. And it was because we, the collective, were all playing by the rules. We were doing what we're supposed to because it was important for the greater good. And then there were these two people who just thought they're above that and thought that they didn't have to wear their masks. And that made me angry. And then I thought, I wonder if, um, because if we look at like the incidence of, of say bisexuality, bisexual people represent the largest percentage of the LGBTQ plus community, but they're the least visible. And the idea, if you look at younger people, especially uh, Gen Y and, um, and the, the, the incidences of, of queer identity, it's like up in the 20s and 30% now of people identifying openly with not being exclusively heterosexual. Mm. Um, in fact, in different studies, when different types of questions are asked, you get different results. In a YouGov study, uh, people were asked to identify as like gay, straight or bi, and there was like about 10, 7%, I think, who were like gay or bi. And everybody else was heterosexual. But when you asked different questions like, um, uh, do you think if the right person came along at the right time, um, you could be attracted to somebody of the same sex? Or different, different questions elicited different results. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like 46% of people uh, said that they were not exclusively heterosexual. And so then I wonder if those feelings... Um, particularly in hypermasculine worlds like sport where there's, I think, two out football players in the entire world at the moment. Um, if actually, say, let's, let's say 20% of those people, but potentially more, mm -hmm. actually do feel attraction for men and, and they see other people expressing that, then they're having to, to control their feelings because they don't think there's a place for that to exist in the world. I can see how that manifests in anger and homophobia and, um, and self-loathing as well and a lot of shame and that's why people don't come out. And so I think that not all homophobia comes from people feeling same-sex attracted thoughts, but I do think that probably a big attraction, a big percentage does come from people actually having like non-normative feelings and, and attraction um, and, and an inability to express that attraction is probably, you know, I mean, it, it lead, just not being able to express who we are authentically can lead to shame. And do you think that's because people don't know? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the implication I'm kind of getting is that basically until you went to Sydney, you didn't really know that it was possible to be gay or that, that because there wasn't an example you didn't sort of know what it was well it's not positive i mean even in today's society it's still exceptional um we're still debating the rights of queer people like uh, queer people are still tokenistically included in media um i think out of australia the uk and the us the three sort of western civilizations that i have lived in the uk has it less wrong than everybody else. There was a hint of possibly a better, better there. <laughs> you, you held that back. Um, I do see that like the way, you know, particularly gay men and women uh, are portrayed in UK media is a lot more positive. Um, but I think if you go to different regions, you're still going to find young people struggling to come out. And that's because there are these ideas um, that are either religious-based quite often. Yep. Um, I just saw Strange Loop um, on Monday Night at the Barbican and one of the sort of main songs, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was basically 
you know, AIDS is the punishment for being gay and you're going to hell was sort of like one of the themes that the the main character really felt um, was pushed on them from a very young age. And there was so many of those subtle comparisons uh, or not so subtle comparisons that, that were shown in Strange Loop that were, that it was it was a real um, it was, you know, they were from a, a very religious sort of evangelical uh, black family in the United States and seeing how religion impacted their queerness mm. was really interesting. And so it's not just that there aren't people don't know that they can be queer. I think that one of the big problems is the idea of the binary. If you're not straight, then you are gay. Mm. Another big problem is the fact that there is a huge negative stigma around the idea of being gay, um, like, you know, examples in the, the straight identifying men being like, oh, thank God I'm not gay, but also you're not straight. And in fact, some of these, some of these people like who I have relations with, it's fascinating watching how, I mean, it's, it's, I, I do feel like I'm doing God's work quite often, <laughs> empowering them with language. Damn right. Um, really enables them to understand themselves better. So, again, gay, straight, if that's your only two options, there's going to be a lot of confusion there. If being gay is a horrible thing, um, inverted commas, uh, and, but they're, they're not straight, but they're not gay, empowering these people with language, which I've done, um, by talking about different sexuality ideas like pansexuality or bisexuality or even the get out of jail free card, I think is heteroflexible. Because nice. um, straight men are like, oh, hetero. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd go for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm hetero flexible. <laughs> um, one, of, one of these guys, um, I'm trying to anonymize him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of these guys recently. I said I was talking about heteroflexible as an idea and he would often be like, he'd often like message me like, oh, yeah, I've been feeling really hetero lately um, or like, oh, maybe I'm a bit bi. But even, even like having those ways of expressing his feelings and naming his feelings is a step up from the, the, denial. the denial that he was experiencing before. And then because of that and because there's no place for him and, and men like him to express their sexuality in their worlds, they go seeking sex, you know, on the down low, on dating apps and, you know, Grindr, there's sort of certain corners of Grindr that these heterosexual identifying men go to meet usually sort of like femme guys, cross-dressers, trans women, but in a fetishized sort of unhealthy expression of their sexuality. And well, I will say that those corners of Grindr aren't necessarily the most enlightened or um, positive representations of the queer community. In fact, they may confirm everything that those guys thought about queer people and hate about queer people. Mm. And so it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because there is there are people who I guess are culturally straight, like these men are ostensibly straight. They like football and they like women and they like straight things and they don't want to like Kylie or... Um, everyone can like Kylie. Everyone can like Kylie. She's universally accepted. Yeah, 100%. Put um, <laughs> But they don't want to necessarily... They, they, aren't, they aren't culturally queer. Mm. They're just culturally straight they do like all these masculine things but they also like it up the butt yeah um which is not 
straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, creating a space for them to uh, express those parts of themselves is something that I'm really focused on. I mean, ultimately, I think everyone gets laid more. Yeah, and which I can th- only be a good thing. If you think of that as your sales pitch, it's like if we can work out how to make environmental protection profitable to the people in the world with the most amount of money, then we'll solve the problem. Mm-hmm. If we can work out, and I've worked out a way that everybody can get laid more. I feel like you've just got to appeal to money, sex, or power, Always. and you'll you'll unlock the door. Is there, a, just like on a, a brief, well, I guess the whole interview's well, the personal. the belt. Yeah. We, we had a dominatrix in yesterday. Uh, <laughs> oh, she had some go. cracking stories about that. Um, <laughs> but just, just uh, for you, right, I don't know, like, you want to hook up, you want to get laid, mm-hmm. and then... You're also having to be a therapist to some people. I mean, is that a little bit tiring? Could it, you not just want to like... <laughs> it sounds like it should be, but it's. I think it's my kink. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I think, I mean, look, I would love a world where I could just... And I think most people would love a world where they could just procure sex on demand, procure intimacy on demand, procure connection on Happiness. demand. Pardon? Happiness. Happiness on demand. But I think it's that dynamic tension between security and freedom mm. that uh, is the spice of life. It makes us interested. And I think that it's a problem. T- it's a paradox to be managed, not a problem to be solved. And so when you start to look at things like that, rather than like, why isn't it this way? It's more like, well, actually, this is probably the thing that makes life exciting. Um, I would probably like to go out to a gay bar, flirt with a man and form a connection and, you know, have fulfilling and enjoyable sex with him without the therapy. But that that doesn't happen um, for me. Uh, I think there's probably several layers. One is like being a less masculine gay man. Um, Gay men are definitely sort of have those same ideals of masculinity imposed on them. Um, And so being someone who just ordinarily uh, feels and looks and acts more feminine, but then also as a job, dressing up as a drag performer, then also being like, you know, an internationally famous drag queen. Um, And... There's so many complex layers of like power dynamics and things, and it sometimes mm. it just feels like it's a lot harder for me to engage with gay men in a sexual way, except in somewhere like San Francisco. Right, that's my sweet spot where yeah. the 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 people there are a bit more queer and a bit more evolved. I perhaps would imagine in Dalston and Brighton, I can also find uh, more ease. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, fascinatingly, like. Um, on apps like Grindr with like a Courtney profile, there's a whole world of men who are like, there's no games. They're like, these, these men are seeking someone to have sex with. On Grindr, I, might, I have two Grindr profiles, a Shane Grindr and a Courtney Grindr. Mm-hmm. And on Shane Grindr, it's like, it's a dance and it's a game and it's that, that tension of, of security and freedom and like, I like you, but not too much. And yeah, yeah. sort of like play those games. Mm-hmm. Whereas on Courtney Grindr, it's just like, Want a root? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, not that it's all just about, and for me, it's not really about casual or anonymous sex. I definitely like to um, form a connection and have intimacy, which probably sounds like the challenge when it comes to a straight identifying man. But I think actually 
these guys are so desperate to understand themselves. And maybe I take advantage of that with my post-coitus psychoanalysis. I don't know. <laughs> but I like to think of it as a good thing, not a bad thing. For sure. Um, let's, you mentioned it, so let's talk about it. Internationally famous <laughs> drag queen. I mean, so 2003, you yes. come 13th in Australian Idol yeah. as Courtney Act. And then it's not really until you get on RuPaul's Drag Race that things, well, really take off outside of Australia. Yeah. How did Drag Race change your life? Did Dra it change your life? Yeah, definitely it changed my life. In many ways, um, Idol was the beginning and I was 21 and it validated that drag could be legitimate because mm. back then drag certainly wasn't. Um, the idea that I could ever make a career as a drag performer beyond, you know, a couple of hundred bucks in a gay bar was just not a thought. And then Idol made that possible. And so I... That kept that dream alive for 10 years until we filmed Drag Race in 2013. I moved to the US in 2010, not wanting to go on Drag Race, but in fact, the opposite, like wanting to carve out a career for myself, not on Drag Race because that's what everybody else was doing. So I was trying to zig or zag when they were zigging or zagging. I get you. Um, and, but then... After a, a couple of years of like hustling in LA, I realized that LA was the um, the city of promise. Like if America's a land of opportunity, it's not necessarily the land of like action or um, it's like the possibility is there, but the turning it into a result, mm. it's it's not the the land of that. Um, and LA certainly is like, but it was exciting to be like 28 and like everybody was a YouTuber or they were going to auditions or they were, you know, it was, it was like a really fun and vibrant place. And then Drag Race came along and it was just so much fun to be in a professional environment with all these other queens who were, um, we were all operating to our optimal level. And it wasn't often in, it's not often in real life, I don't think for most people to be operating at their optimal level, except perhaps like surgeons um where it's quite important um <laughs> yeah so it was kind of really lovely to be doing all of these different things expressing all these different um skills that i had as best that i could knowing that the world was going to be watching season five of drag race was the biggest yet and then season six which is the season that i was on kind of blew up around the world and it was the one that took drag race from being uh something that was on like a, a more of a niche cable channel. And I think people in the UK didn't really have, they had to, you know, be forced into a life of crime and illegally downloaded on a torrent if they wanted to watch it, which is still testament to the show's success because it still had For an international sure. audience. But then season six went on to Netflix here in a few years later, might've been 2017. I think it was the first year that I did the Edinburgh Fringe. And that was perfect coincidental timing because People in the UK had all just discovered season six on Netflix and then I had a fabulous season at the Fringe that year. And um, it was just uh, a really fun time. And to also have um, contemporaries, uh, to have to, – to, uh, in Australia, I was the one sort of celebrity drag queen, if you will. Um, I think celebrity was overstating at the time, but publicly known um, drag queen. Um, and I was working in, you know, professional and mainstream environments. 
and that was a bit isolating and to then go on drag race and to have all of these other sisters not just from my season but from all of the previous seasons and we would see each other at gigs and we'd be getting paid great money and we'd be performing in at you know different pride festivals and gay bars around the US and then eventually tours in theaters and releasing music and and getting millions of listens on on songs and on music videos it was a really thrilling time and um, I'm very grateful for Drag Race uh, for the opportunities that it, that it gave me in that respect. There's another element, I think, to reality television. I just watched um, the first episode of the new season of Black Mirror. Joan is awful. Have you seen this? I've watched the first episode of the new season. Yes, I know okay. what you're talking about, yeah. So I thought, and I, I don't want to give spoilers away for listeners... <laughs> But I thought that that episode was not just like a Black Mirror, like, oh, imagine if that happened. But I actually thought that it was kind of a metaphor for reality television mm -hmm. and how people can feel after watching their portrayals on reality television where, uh, like, Joan, the character on this show, was seeing a, 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 a a, a drama of herself on television, of her life on television. And there was nuances to how it was different. And we as viewers got to see, oh, yeah, that did happen. It didn't quite happen like that. And it is coming across a lot more harsh when mm -hmm. Selma Hayek says it, who plays the character in the, in the show. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, and you can sort of see how there's like those heightened or more sensational versions that are zoomed in on and how that can shift the narrative. Like Joan, Joan I don't think Joan was awful in real life, she may not have been the nicest, warmest person, but she certainly was ca coming across more awful in, in the television portrayal of yep. herself. And I think for me on Drag Race, um, what I saw was perhaps like uh, uh, what might be 20% of my personality became 80% of my personality. Oh, yeah. And for me, that was a real struggle um, to understand and to deal with reflecting back it made me dig my heels in and say well actually this is who I am a lot more strongly and then I think Celebrity Big Brother came along and gave me an opportunity to really show that it's really interesting to hear your perspectives on reality TV not just as well as a you know as a viewer but as a participant in it mm. you know to, to hear to hear that side of things because I, what I was I wanted to ask you was you know what a, what difference would it have made to a younger Shane to have a show like Drag Race or really any form of queer representation, mainstream queer representation. But I, it's really interesting to me that that having that as a viewer and as like a consumer of that media, I'm sure would have been really significant, mm. but actually as a participant that your, your view of it is not necessarily, you know, all sunshine and rainbows is, is really interesting. Yeah. And I think, when I look at, I mean, reality TV is so popular in the UK yep. and caricatures and portrayals of people are become iconic in the UK, whether it's, you know, Big Brother characters, Love Island characters. Um, Nicky Graham. Come dine with me. Yeah. Um, I hope you enjoy the money, Joan. Yeah. All of those are sort of iconic. But interestingly, the way that those things impact those people does does have huge ramifications in their lives. And I think that um, I see it a lot with Drag Race where 
these sort of heightened portrayals of you, you become publicly known as that and therefore you feel an imposition to live up to that um, expectation. And so if you're portrayed a certain way, you probably tend to then start being a certain way. And for me, there was that real moment of going, oh, no, this isn't who I am. Mm. I need to define myself. And so when people come up to me and say, oh, my God, I loved you on Drag Race, I'm always like, oh, I know that they, all they mean is that they loved a giant pair of wings that I wore or they have like a general idea. They're not hyper-focusing on little moments or like micro edits or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for me, um, Drag Race is like a, oh, no. And I've had to learn to to go, oh, these people are just saying yeah. I love you and they're complimenting you. Mm -hmm. If someone says, why were you so mean to Jocelyn Fox? Mm -hmm. Then I'm triggered. Um, that's the thing that that really triggers me. That was the that was the thing of my drag race portrayal that was like um, was the was the the lasting hangover that I had to spend many hours in therapy unpacking. Okay, okay. Um, let's let's talk about Big Brother then. Okay? Yeah, because as you mentioned earlier, you're in there with Anne Widdicombe, mm -hmm. who in the past, and I want to make sure I get this right, has said that homosexuality could be quote cured. Um, I think a lot of viewers probably expected confrontation mm. between the two of you. Um, there wasn't. And I wondered if you could describe, well, actually, I'll sort of give the, give the floor to you really and sort of describe your experience and your interactions with her. I don't want to sort of characterize them too much. Yeah, I mean, Anne in 23 years of parliament voted against every single piece of pro-LGBT legislation that ever came before her. Um, and I think... I think there was a few things. One, I found her to be probably one of the most enjoyable people to have conversations with in the house because she, you know, is a smart and articulate woman, but she definitely, you know, her ideas are obviously informed by her experience. Um, she converted from Church of England to Roman Catholic when they started canonizing women and, and ordaining female priests. And she, she definitely adheres to a more strict version of Catholicism, um, which is, you know, and conservative means you want things to stay the same. Um, progressive is you want things to change. And so like environmental conservation is a great thing because we want the environment to stay the same. We don't want it to get worse. But I think when it comes to um, politics and social values and, um, and, and it was year of the woman as well, um, my season of big brother. And I do remember and sort of saying, well, back in my day, women couldn't even rent um, an apartment without a man and they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. And that was sort of reason as to why equality had been reached in the sexes. And now, you know, the Me Too movement was just snowflakery and things like that. Mm -hmm. I remember her saying, and also remember none of the, none of the women at the table when she said that saying anything about that. And I sort of thought I'll just pause and wait for somebody who's, who's, opinion is more valid in this space to sort of say something on that. And I was like, I can't sit here and let Anne Winnicombe call the Me Too movement snowflakery and had to have a conversation about that. Um, but it was, she always had, her logic made no sense to me. And she said that it wasn't informed by her religion. I just find that impossible to believe. Um, and 
uh, those ideas, a lot of her ideas about gender, sexuality and such just weren't examined. Um, they seemed to be beliefs based on, uh, you know, probably the Bible, but beliefs on how society was. Mm. Um, and that idea of being a conservative and wanting society to say the same, that was, that was I think, what drove her. Um, and so coming to understand that and listening to her, I remember our very first conversation was about marriage equality, as you call it. Um, it's not a bad impression. <laughs> thanks. And her sort of talking about how you can't change the definition of marriage. And I was like, well, it, it definitely has been changed. You know, monogamy used to mean one person for life. Now it just means one person at a time. And mm -hmm. divorce being introduced by the Church of England, like all of these things are changes in the definition of marriage. So to say that it can't be changed to include uh, same-sex people is, it, it's not true. Um, and so, therefore, why do you say that it can't be changed for this when it has been changed for that? And I think it comes down to, you know, one, one a person's individual beliefs. And I think if your beliefs are equality, um, then you would see that marriage equality uh, should be a thing. I think marriage equality um, for me was less about marriage and more about equality. Um, in Australia, we had a, a national legally non-binding survey it wasn't a referendum but it was a plebiscite um and much what like word? yeah much like in ireland it was sort of like the nation voting on whether gay was okay um and that it wasn't so much about marriage it was like two-thirds of people in australia said yes mm. the gays are all right and there was almost Just like a, a social mandate where we're like, okay, we've all voted. <laughs> we can agree that the gays are allowed to be accepted in society now. Um, but, yeah, the conversations with Anne were fascinating. Uh, and I, I, I think I enjoyed hearing her arguments and her points and her discussions. Uh, I didn't understand them. I didn't agree with them. Uh, I didn't think that. I wasn't naive enough to think that I would change her opinions, but I was aware that there was a lot of people watching at home on television who might get to hear my side of the story and her side of the story and understand them differently. And before I went into the house, I, um, I thought Jermaine Greer might be in the house. Um, and so I thought that Jermaine being, you know, the, one of the pioneers of the second wave of feminism might have thoughts about me and drag or queer people or who knows what. And so mm -hmm. I, I um, role play. I've never done anything like this before. We're like role played at a dinner with a friend of mine um, who's I'm a trans woman, Calpurnia. We had lunch at this um, restaurant in LA and sh she played Jermaine Greer and I played myself. Um, and she asked me questions. And one of the things that we realized at that lunch was that I wasn't going to change it. Jermaine's opinions and to be honest I don't really know what Jermaine's opinions would be mm -hmm. um, uh, she's you know a, a brilliant person um, who's changed the world uh, for women and for men for people for the better um, in recent years she's had some opinions that I strongly disagree with when it comes to trans people but then 
seems to have shifting ideas on those opinions. So I don't really know. But in this idea of like role play with someone who disagrees with certain things, um, it became apparent that I wasn't going to change her opinions. But rather than getting caught in an argument and yelling at each other, having having her side heard and having my side heard might um, might reveal to people parts of the arguments that they hadn't been aware of before. And so I just wanted to focus on that. I wanted to be respectful to Anne because that's how I would like to be treated. And I wanted to um, hear as best I could why she thought that way and then also share why I thought my way. Thinking about um, that, you sort of going on there and putting yourself in a situation with someone who well, it goes beyond not agreeing with you, you know. Um, Fundamentally disagrees with my right to exist. Yep. <laughs> That's a very difficult thing to do. But doing it for a sort of a greater purpose and that educational purpose um, and being as visible as you are elsewhere in the media, do you think that you are the, the role model that uh, younger Shane wished they'd seen growing up? I hope so. And that's always been my motivation. Um, is actually it was right before I went into the Big Brother house. I was talking to my therapist on it was before Zoom existed because it was before the pandemic. What maybe it was Skype. Yeah. Um, and I was feeling a bit conflicted because I had had a tricky situation with Drag Race and dealing with the fallout of that, but ultimately being grateful for it. And I was like, why am I going? Should I be doing this reality TV show? Like, what happens if? And he said to me, like, why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? And when I was really quiet and sort of tapped into my inner feelings, I thought, I'm, I want to do this for the 14-year-old me who didn't have those role models. And when I connected with that as a motivation, it then paid it forward throughout the whole season, I think, because I I think when you're able to attach um, whatever you're doing, whether it's, you, you know, your work, your vocation, anything to something that is more than just you, then you're sort of like, I don't know, Im imbued with a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning, but also like, I don't know, it's not, it's never felt like a burden. It's always felt like a real honor to get to, um, to do that. And, and there, there is a, a pressure to um, get it right, especially increasingly. So I think, you know, now more than ever, there's like this pressure of, of getting it right and saying the right thing. And it would be nice if people could just exist without having to be role models constantly. But in a world where that isn't the case, I am grateful and honored that I do have that opportunity. And, and hopefully younger people are are seeing that and and growing up with those ideas and i think the change is generational and i think you know um as Anne's generation um leave the planet and younger people are born into this more progressive world i think we'll see those ideas changing i would just love it if some of those ideas could change quicker but i think that's probably why we see the conflict that we have at the moment with these moral panics where the world is changing a bit too fast and people um, aren't able to keep up as easily. Shane Janik, thank you so much for taking part in this. It's been a really powerful conversation. Thank you. Thanks Loved for having it. me. Thank it's you. Been a delight. Cheers. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.